Welcome to McKinsey Talks Talent, featuring McKinsey leaders and talent experts Brian Hancock and Bill Shanninger. I'm Lucia Rahili. I think the days of expecting any employee in knowledge work to come in five days a week as a requirement, I think that is over. Even in the most conservative companies, I think there's going to be an expectation that at least I have one day that I can flex and work remotely. Today, a look back at 2021 and how the pandemic will continue to influence how leaders can approach business in the year to come. Brian, Bill, so great to see you live in the studio. It's great to be in the studio. So great to be here. It's been nigh on two years since the three of us recorded together. Last year at this time, on the one hand, post-vaccine, we're in a different place now and on the other feels like we're constantly recalibrating expectations right what in your view has changed in employees mental health over the past year you know well, i mean i think one thing we've seen for sure is it's gotten worse just the, the the pronounced amount of prolonged stress prolonged anxiety prolonged uncertainty we started making it okay by acknowledging that people are stopping working and not coming back. I think just whether it's a timeout, whether it's I'm done, whether it's uh, we'll see how this goes, the doors are wide open for people to say, I'm just, I'm not doing it. That's one group for sure. I do think there's another group that has basically said, I'm done with the pandemic. I've gotten my shots. I'm going into the office. I want to do it the way I want to do it. Now, some of those people in leadership are like kind of strangely being a bit demanding about people coming back. But I think there's a portion of people who are just saying, I'm done. I'm going to arenas. I'm going to stadiums. I'm going to restaurants. And Interesting bifurcation. I think burnout is as much, if not more, of an issue now. I mean, when you ask people what their number one concern is coming back to the office, it's work-life balance. It's the commute. It's managing all the things they had to do while they still have schools that randomly cancel on a Friday and dog sitters that don't show up because there's a shortage. And at the same time, you ask people what the number one worry about staying at home is, it's work-life balance because there's no boundary between home and the office, you're available 24-7, and some organizations have managed to hit the worst of both worlds. You're expected to be in the office, so you have to deal with all the logistics of coming in, but then when you're at home, you're expected to be available 24-7, and people are saying, look, now I was barely able to hold on during the pandemic, but now I've got the added stress of coming in without the benefit of a break between work and life. This has got to stop. It's interesting because when we last spoke, Bill, you said leaders should not sugarcoat the situation in the way that they addressed employee well-being and that genuine expression of sort of feeling and vulnerability was what employees actually needed. How are leaders doing in terms of emotionally supporting their employees? I think the leaders who were inclined to start with the humility to say that you know that you're banged up, really have an awareness of your own grief, your own longing, your own anxiety, and being willing to engage the employees on it. I think that has yielded remarkable returns, just being able to have an open conversation on it. Maybe even keeping someone in who was struggling to balance home where you needed to be a teacher, a mom, a partner, maybe taking care of an elderly parent, whatever. Unfortunately, I think we've seen leaders who themselves have gotten burned out. And at some point, we're in the world of, I I just can't do it anymore. I'm going to set a date and you're coming in. While you can understand that, I think it's part of what the responsibility of being a leader in this environment is. And maybe some people just aren't up to it. And I think there's a set of leaders in between that may be up to it, but just don't know how to do it. They've never grown up in a corporate culture where you actually talk about these things. 
they don't know what to do when somebody comes to them and says, hey, I'm done. And not like I'm done with this job, like I'm done done, like I'm at the end. And there are organizations that are starting to recognize those folks in the middle, the ones who are well-intended but don't know what to do, and providing them training with, hey, if somebody comes to you and says, I'm done done, here are the questions to ask. Here are the things to do. Here are the places to go so that every leader can be equipped. Because while some people are natural leaders and knew what to do, and some people are done themselves, I think addressing that large part in the middle where people want to do the right thing but don't quite know how, I think that's where we're seeing organizations starting to invest and be very intentional. What else do you see employers doing on the kind of organization-wide level at this point to address mental health and burnout? I think we're seeing it at a couple of different levels. One is, you know, from a benefit standpoint, hey, are we providing mental health benefits that are on parity with our other physical health benefits? Are we truly treating mental health as a health concern? Are we making sure that we've got the right resources in place, you know, remote counseling, other pieces that you can do? It's about having programs where people can actually understand what mental health issues are. I mean, McKinsey has our Mind Matters, which was a mandatory training we all went through that identified and normed what mental health is and made it acceptable for people to say, hey, I think I have an issue and created a common language for us to you know, rally around those in need. If it's as simple as a timeout, literally a timeout, just, mm-hmm. okay, hey, just take a pause, mm-hmm. take a couple days off. Mm-hmm. In the period of time when I had an EM who I discovered only because she was breaking down that she hadn't physically seen another person in 45 days. And I was like, whoa, okay, what do we need to do to get you with friends or with parents? Go there. And this was the time like when you went somewhere you had to like shelter in place. Just go there. Set up shop there. Sometimes it feels that these wellness programs are super helpful in terms of self-care, but they're an additional work stream that folks have to undertake Do you see employers making that calibration? I do see employers starting to be very intentional about what a full spectrum of mental health concerns could be. So if somebody is really in need, hey, I know exactly where to go if you are really in need. If it's a broader burnout conversation, you're still in need. It's not minimizing that, but it's thinking about what the toolkit is there and how that's different from some of the other toolkits, which may start to get more clinical more quickly. Do you guys have recommendations for leaders in terms of what to say to employees whom you think may be suffering but are not sure how to approach, given the kind of waxing and waning cadence of folks' emotional efflorescence during this pandemic? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Depending on the company, there's some reluctance to ask questions about someone's mental state, right? Historically, that would have almost been a no-fly zone. I don't think we have that luxury right now. I don't think you need to know if someone has a diagnosis. But I do think you ought to be paying attention saying, you seem like you're in distress. At a minimum, it's a sign of caring. Are you okay? I do think there's an obligation on two fronts. One for the person. Do they really look like they're in distress? Or is it just they're in distress enough that they're not only functioning very well as an employee, but they're impacting the functioning of the unit? Mm -hmm. In which case, maybe you strongly suggest a uh, break. I do think it's a tightrope, right? Because we so guard and value our privacy. But in this environment, so much more is on display. And then, you, you know, if you even look a little bit like insurance claims, massive, massive increase in substance abuse, right? Full on with alcohol, full on with drugs. You know, more and more people being diagnosed, usually with some level of depression and anxiety together. So I do think it's a trickier situation. Maybe you can just start with, 
I'm not a therapist. I'm a concerned colleague, and it looks like you're struggling. One of the things that our women in the workplace you know, research showed is that, yes, women are feeling more burned out than men, although both women and men had a significant increase in burnout over the pandemic. But individuals that had women as leaders felt less burned out. And so I think there is two sides of that. One, how do we recognize and celebrate the additional work that those women leaders are taking on to make sure that their teams are being cared for? Because that in and of itself may be leading to burnout. And then second, you know, is this another reason, another rationale for why we should continue towards having more diverse leadership teams so that we've got people that understand more contexts than a married white male professional that has a great support system, they may not be as empathetic to somebody who is balancing a lot more. And I think the oh, more of those nurse, voices right? we I mean, have. Sheering nurse. Oh yeah. I mean it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be that they're 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 unkind about it. You just don't know. I mean I think about my situation the first seventeen years in the firm, I had someone at home taking care of the kids. I leave on Sunday night, come home on Thursday night. That was the arrangement. I was blissfully ignorant of all of it. It's not until now, obviously I got divorced and then this COVID meant that I could actually have my daughter fully half time. I've never experienced the whole idea that the the kids are in the house and it's coming around 6.30 or something, homework's done. I'm like going, okay, guys, I need to wrap this up. The clock in my head mm-hmm. was like pounding that you had a child there waiting for you to make them dinner. I remember saying it to a team and a client I really love. And she's like, yeah, welcome to be a mom. Will. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> We've been doing that for a while. <laughs> I was like, okay. And so yeah, I, do, I do think it's, it's blissful ignorance. I do think there's the, how can you help women and I think, look, I think there's a societal thing here, which is we continue to load you all up with all the chores. Of the two, We're par- aware. Of yeah, the two partners, mm-hmm. women take on a caring role for their husbands or their partners. Mm-hmm. They're the primary caregiver to the kids. The elder parents almost always go to the woman to make sure things are coordinated and done. I mean, the, just a straight task load for women, in our society anyway, is so massively disproportionate. Anything we can do to give guys a taste to be what it's like to have that level of layering and feeling torn pretty much 24 hours a day. Mm-hmm. I think that might actually help on the leadership front. We do know from our Women in the Workplace report, among other research, that women are likelier than men to suffer burnout. And the research there shows that burnout and the burnout gap between women and men has almost doubled since last year's report. And women who are also people of color are even likelier to suffer chronic stress. How do we see this playing out in terms of the great attrition research? I think it plays right into the great attrition research. I mean, what we're seeing is we're seeing that the reason people are leaving organizations are more for the relational factors. Do I feel valued at work? Do I have a good relationship with the manager? Am I able to manage it all? Versus the structural factors. What's my title or what's my comp? And so I think we're seeing that the reason why people are leaving is for some of the broader pieces, not just pay. What we're also seeing through the great attrition research is, you know, people are walking away from jobs. You know, when we surveyed folks, we found 40% of people were at least somewhat likely to leave their job in the next six months. And almost two thirds of those would leave without another job in hand. Mm -hmm. So they're walking away from work. And if they're walking away from work without something else to go to, I mean, that's a real signal that they are fed up. You know, we're out in the field right now with a survey going specifically to the people who left without jobs. And I think it's a really interesting thing to say, what would bring them back? I think we have to get our head around what it was that no longer made it worth it, you know, in the worlds of gives and gets, if we're going to bring these people back into the workforce. Otherwise, we will have a sustained level of just not enough people working, which could be, I think, pretty problematic and 
Just from a habit building and psychological standpoint, you spend six months not going to work, it might start getting really easy not going to work. Right, but what about financial obligations? Well, interestingly enough, right? Think about the number of people who are dual income, right? And then where the second income is often either for the benefits or for the child care. Right. We'll take the child care out. We just gave them 18 months. They found out what their floor really can be. And so maybe their run rate's a lot lower than they thought. Right. At first, when the great resignation, the great attrition started to be discussed, felt so out of reach. How are people doing this? But the more people do it, the more it feels like, oh, that could potentially be accessible for a broader range of people than one might imagine. It makes it more yeah. tangible as an option. We definitely saw a huge uptick in people that were retiring. But now we're seeing a little glimmer of hope in the unretirement rate is going up. So workforce participation was down and is still down 1.6 percentage points as of this summer. It's now down to 1.5 percentage points lower. So we're ticking back up. People are starting to come back into the workforce. And I think we're seeing that among the older population, among some other folks. And I think what's going to get those people in from the sidelines is going to be things that are a compelling job, a compelling environment, a compelling group of people that they're interacting day to day with. Because the option between a toxic work environment and being at home, they found out through the pandemic, they can afford to be at home. Given that women and people of color are suffering burnout and suffering chronic stress and more at risk of leaving the workforce, do we risk backsliding on our commitments and particularly those commitments that leaders made in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder and what subsequently felt like an inflection point in that push to redress racial inequities. So I think the inflection point is actually now. Having had 18 months to reflect post the murder of George Floyd, you know, organizations have now started to really think about what are the policies we have What are the manager behaviors? How can we think about hiring more diverse talent pools, in particular in a tight labor market? So the announcements came first, then came the planning. And now it's time for the sustained campaign. And I think this is when we're going to see whether or not we really came through the inflection point, really came through the other side and made substantial advances in DEI and importantly, how included people feel in the workplace, or if after all those planning initiatives, we didn't follow through. And then as a result, you know, slid back. We've encouraged clients to challenge everything about, you know, the requirements for being hired. We've been looking at massive, massive gaps in the workforce. Immediately you start saying things like, well, is there an adjacency? Is there a person doing something really similar in a sector next to it? You know, two decades ago, hospitals realized they were under threat. The experience wasn't very good for the patients. They did not hire from other hospitals. They went to hotels. You have people who are wealth managers saying, hey, who's really good at helping rich people? spend their money, and it's perfectly comfortable talking about large numbers. People who sell time on private jets, yachts, ridiculously expensive cars, it's the same group of people who'd be investing their money. Find these adjacencies. So the point is, it doesn't have to be in your industry. So the minute you say, they don't have to have 10 years of experience. We need you to know something about something, and then we'll grow you and bring you in. That should open the pool dramatically. So that's the hope, anyway. But I do think we're in real, real trouble in certain sectors. We've just had a, you know, it's a sector that's dominated by people of color and women, and those are the ones that have some of the highest rates of people just leaving. We've talked about remote work as an important element of the flexibility some of this demographic is looking for. 
and as a potentially vital factor both to attracting and retaining talent during this period of intense churn. I, mean, I think very few companies would want to offer and very few employees would want to have fully remote because of the need for collaboration, for getting together, but to have some part of the work life remote. I think the days of expecting any employee in knowledge work to come in five days a week as a requirement, I think that is over. So I I think the pandemic has shifted and it will depend on work environment, job, you know, the, the actual tasks that get done, whether that means that you're coming in the office three days a week or three days a month. I think there is an expectation that even in the most conservative companies, I think there's going to be an expectation that at least I have one day that I can can flex and work remotely. Are you seeing any delta in performance between companies that have remained either fully remote or hybrid and companies that have called employees back full time? For sure, the fully remote has been, you know, and has shown a trend for the last six months. We were all amazed at how much we could do. I think it has started showing some, let's say, withering the ties that bind in the culture, the social connectivity, just being able to go get coffee or go get a meal, onboarding someone in an environment where you can't see them, all you have is the rules that are written down, not the verbal, oh, here's how this really works. And we used to joke and say the best salve for a bad operating model was a good culture. Well, what if you don't get to interact with anybody? All you have is what's written down, and it's probably wrong. I think the one and the zero version of this is just a mistake. I think we fell in a little bit of even how we were describing it. I think the power dynamic in particular is what is driving a lot of it. The employees have just figured out after 18 months, you don't actually get to tell me when I need to show up, period. That's remarkable. I think the flip now is what's actually happening, which is we need to tell the bosses what to do. What we're finding is it's the entry-level folks, the folks coming just out of college, the folks just joining the organization that are the most hungry for coming back into the office, most hungry for the interaction. And what we're seeing is in professional service firms, in financial service firms, in law firms, what we're seeing is it's the more senior folks that are like, this is amazing. I can do everything from the Hamptons. I don't need to come back into the city. And now it's organizations saying, hey, apprenticing people is part of your job. And part some parts of apprenticeship need to be done in person. So you, the bosses of the folks that are coming in, you need to come in and you need to figure out with your employees when they're in so that you're all in together. And so it's flipped it a little bit from the bosses telling the employees when to come in to now the companies telling the bosses that they need to go in and figure out with their employees what's going to work. What a huge deal. You spend so much money recruiting these people and what you're just going to let them walk because they've had a terrible two years and didn't get any apprenticeship. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, for us, and we started having a couple of my teams co-locate, but they'll go to like different McKinsey offices just for the team to be together and actually problem solve in the room. And sometimes the client wants you there, sometimes not. But some of it we just said, you know what, we're going to have you get together for team room problem solving just because of the the sparking and the camaraderie and, and, and the working together. We've talked about the middle manager and the vanishing role that the two of you said should actually be highly valued. Say more about the role that middle management plays in training and development. Oh, I mean, so much of the sense-making device of work, how does something really work? What really matters? How does it fit into the bigger corporate strategy? It's not just about the task. There's an operating part. There's a culture part. There's just a good old-fashioned coaching part. That stuff is invaluable. In our pursuit of cost-cutting, we choked out the number of middle managers, and we said it's better to hit the perfect number than it is to make sure that the work being done is actually getting the leadership it needs. We do a series of video conferences, convenings of HR leaders 
And I was on one with uh, probably 50 people that were on. And we came up with this topic, you know, hey, how important is it to be in person? How important is it for middle managers to be the ones to apprentice? And somebody in the group had the devil's advocate perspective. They said, but can't you learn skills remotely? We've had all of these technical training skills programs that we've rolled out, and we can see that people can code this more effectively and do this more effectively. And where the conversation went was fascinating because people said, hey, yes, that is true. You can do some technical tasks and learn those remotely. But those tasks aren't the ones that are, for many people in knowledge work, the ones that are most important. The ones that are most important are, you know, the things that are related to creativity and problem solving and understanding the overall situation. Those are the things that you only learn when you spend real in-depth time with someone. Those aren't things that you can learn with a program. And yes, there is some ways you can have that conversation remotely. But I think all of the research shows that for those types of interactions, for those types of skills, which our future of work research says are some of the most important skills for the future, the way you get those is with your manager. You can see, you know, just before the pandemic, we had people bringing people back. And then, you know, now we've had people out, you know, fully remotely for a long time. You can see the impact on the tie that binds. You can see the impact on the fabric of the culture. And I have, I have to admit, there's a part of me that thinks maybe for some pockets of the workforce who felt a bit disenfranchised, who felt a bit transactional, this has been wonderful because they didn't feel connected anyway. And that to me says... Each segment, we ought to meaningfully look and say, what is the role of convening? Is it just communication? Is it celebrating? You know, and, and what's does that still matter? I mean, Brian and I are here, wanting to see you, Lucia, obviously. But we're also going out to dinner tonight to celebrate a young colleague who just got elected partner. And to me, one of the things we do best is the celebration of the election into the partnership. Mm-hmm. And every organization has these ceremonies. If you can't stay anchored on that, and that too goes by the wayside, well, what do you have left? Brian, do you think the conversation that you had indicated that companies are beginning to recognize that people development could be an essential part of the middle manager's role? I I think companies are recognizing that the people manager has a critical role in development. Mm -hmm. I think we're seeing even that in learning and development organizations. What they're turning to is they're saying, hey, yes, we, we need to have some technical programs. We need to have some programs for compliance and other pieces. But we're going to direct a lot of our energy to people leaders because so much of the learning, so much of the skills we need in the future are what's done in the job. And what's cool is we're seeing you know, organizations think not just through how do I upskill the manager, but how do I reorient the manager's time so that they have real time to be a people leader, so they have real time to to spend the time in apprenticeship, to spend the time in coaching. And they're going even one step further to think, hey, and how do I manage it and go? But I think there's a moment now where people are realizing, hey, the manager in particular at this moment is critical. Mm -hmm. So how do we think about development as developing people through their manager versus development as being a bunch of cool things you can download off the learning management Mm -hmm. system? What are the top two or three other priorities on the minds of talent leaders going into 2022? I think many of them are worried about more people leaving. I think there's a fair number of them who are fingers crossed, toes crossed, saying, well, this is a transitory. They're all going to come back. I think that's a thinly veiled, I'm going to get all my power back. I think there's a fair number of folks who've been you know, at the tail end of their leadership career 
who walk out of their office and see an empty sea of cubes and say, where do all my people go, which turns into where does my power go? I think we probably have to accelerate the transition of that group of leaders. I think it's a wonderful opportunity for a newer generation of leaders who get this mix of together, not together, remote, individual work, teamwork, collaboration. I think we probably need to speed up that transition a little bit. Yeah, I think 2022 is the year of pulling it all together. And what I mean by that is I see organizations that are thinking about, I need a real change in my culture to have my managers spend time with people and to do that. To make that happen, I need to change the roles. To make that happen, I need to change huge parts of the talent system, how I do performance management, how I think about recruiting and the role of the hiring manager, like rethinking all of those pieces of the talent system with a goal not to have individual outputs on talent acquisition or on performance management or on learning and development, but really have all of those be in service of the change that we're trying to make in our people and the change that we're trying to make through our people leaders. I think we're at the point now where for many organizations, next year is the year of, okay, how do we pull it all together? And now, how do we, if we pull it together, rapidly advance? And if we don't, what are the risks for us on the other side? Thanks so much, guys. This was a great discussion. I'm looking forward to many more in 2022. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Lucia Rahilly with Brian Hancock and Bill Shanninger. Subscribe to McKinsey Talks Talent wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have questions for Brian and Bill, write to us at McKinseyTalksTalent at McKinsey.com. We'd love to hear from you and we may answer your question on the show. Be well.